Hello everybody, Jason here from the At The Coalface podcast. I've created a new sub-series called Mentoring Moments, and Mentoring Moments is composed of clips taken from my one-on-one and group mentorship sessions where we discuss e-commerce, digital, retail, and so much more. Hopefully you get a lot out of this. Enjoy. It's great to have you guys with me today. It's great to share time with you and have you guys on board for the ride. I think this is the first time for both of you, so this will be fun. And yeah, we obviously the industry is very busy at this time of the year with Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Christmas, Thanksgiving holidays. There's lots going on around the world from an e-commerce perspective, from a digital perspective. And then, of course, we're in the middle of in the middle of the eye of the storm economically as well, globally. So there's lots of challenges, but opportunities. E-commerce got a massive shot in the arm during COVID, and so everybody went wild with e-commerce. And now the uh, really the wartime generals are getting their time in the sun now. The people that can the people that can drive not only revenue but can drive profitability. I think that's I think that's one of the things that has been missing from a priority perspective over the last couple of years is. There's been this mantra, particularly in e-commerce, of growth at all costs and trying to acquire market share at all costs. And I think that the industry has gotten a short, sharp shock as VC funds have started to dry up. We've moved into a much higher interest rate environment. So money has become much more expensive. Capital has become much more expensive. It's been harder to secure that capital for growth. Deals are still happening. I just interviewed a new platform, an e-commerce platform developer. They're just They're about a year and a half old now, and they're building a brand new e-commerce platform for B2C and, and D2C brands. And they've just secured and just announced a, a huge round of funding for their business. So deals are still getting done. It's just that the due diligence that VCs and industry players are making before they make their bets before they place their bets, before they invest the money. The due diligence is much deeper. It's much longer. And so deals are taking longer to get done as a result. And so we're seeing fundamental structural changes all across the economy through almost any lens. Things are changing pretty radically out there. And so profitability is definitely on everyone's lips at the moment. It's certainly on the lips of my clients. It's on the lips of just about everybody out there now. I think this is a good thing. I think it's a healthy thing. I think the market correction is a super healthy thing. Zero interest rates over an extended period of time like we've had since the 2008 financial crisis, we've had extended period of of low interest rates and it's caused distorted capital flows. It's caused distorted investments. It's caused distorted investments in crypto, Web3, all sorts of things, high risk assets in the search of yield because interest rates have been so low. So I think this is a very good thing. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts people, but so does inflation. And the reality is 9 to 15% inflation around the world is just totally unsustainable for the average man and woman in the street. So the reality is these higher interest rates are here to stay. I think they're going to be around for a lot longer than people think. I think inflation is going to be much harder to get under control than people think. But I think ultimately it's putting us in, it's setting us on a better course, a healthier more sustainable course. And I think ultimately what it's forcing marketers to do is to be much, much smarter. The economic challenges combined, the impending death of third-party cookies, iOS privacy changes, rising CAC across paid and performance channels. I think all of these things are playing a massive part in reorientating marketers' focus away from transactional marketing. And when trans- what I mean by transactional marketing is digital marketing that expects a conversion within 24 hours to 30 days. That is what I consider digital sales. 
And we're now going back to much more traditional brand building. We're going back to community building and it's forcing brands to refocus on the things that matter, which is creating a true connection with their customers over the long term. So I think this is all going to lead to very good things, but it's going to, it's going to make for a lot of short-term pain. So that is what I would say to set the stage for our time together today. But I'll turn the floor over to you guys and let you ask any questions that are on your mind. No, I think I agree with a lot of what you said. That by now I'm talking to people about going back and looking at the brand, looking at the customer journey, and shifting it, becoming more customer-centric. And the only way they can do that is by going outward and, and then... Yes. Going and then trying to figure out how they can become more knowledgeable about the customer, other than who started the transactional. It's more about, okay, what are we really doing? Why are we in business, really? And so I think that's the challenge that we have, is having those difficult types of conversations, because it's like, who started put everybody on that? Well, we are. We're running 100 miles an hour, a certain big staff and to have that pivot again. And some can't pivot, and that's to struggle. So yeah, a lot of brands, uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt. I think a lot of brands have been on the hamster wheel of cheap and easy customer acquisition through digital channels, through the likes of Facebook and Google and even, and even TikTok to a degree. And I think that it's like a drug, right? It's crack, right? Once you become addicted to cheap and easy acquisition, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's what you focus on, right? And so you stop focusing on retention. You stop focusing on memberships. You stop focusing on subscriptions. You stop focusing on loyalty. You stop focusing on all the things that make a customer sticky in the first place. Because right. if you can go out and get customers cheaply and easily, why do you need? You don't need to focus on those things. But all of a sudden, now that acquisition is hard and it's expensive. Now yeah. all of a sudden, brands are getting religion around retention. And now much more harder. And they don't know how to deal yes, with that. Yes, co- correct. And they're oftentimes dealing with it with smaller teams now as well, because of course, a lot of these brands have either gone out of business because there was a lot of brands and I've been talking to a few of them that they came about during the pandemic. They may have started out as a side hustle for somebody pre-pandemic, and then maybe they lost their job during the pandemic, or maybe they really wanted to go all in on this new thing that they were doing because they saw lots of opportunity online. And so they went all in on their online business. And so we, we had CAC go through the roof during the pandemic because of the fact that there were thousands of, of small businesses that did the exact same thing. And they were all competing for similar customer bases. And so a lot of these, you know, what I call pandemic brands, they right. came into, they came about purely because of the pandemic and the increased buying online. And what we're seeing is global data is showing this, global data of the UK, global data of the United States, global data out of the World Bank, uh, global data coming out all around the world is showing that the pandemic boost has only resulted in about an additional 0.6% over the mean penetration of e-commerce versus pre-pandemic. So in other words, if we drew a trend line from 2012 to 2022 of e-commerce as a penetration of retail, and we took out the COVID bump, we would see that the trend line, we're only about 0.6% above the prevailing trend line. And so what that means is that the pandemic bump has not had the lasting effect that many predicted that it would 
I was one of those that did not predict that it would. I predicted, in fact, the opposite. I predicted that people are creatures of habit. I predicted that people were social creatures. Humans are social creatures. People love shopping. They were not going to change an entire generation's patterns of shopping over two years, two years of a pandemic. It's just humans changing course. It's like, you know, changing social behaviors is like trying to turn the Titanic. It's much, much harder than people think. It's largely generational. So until people who grew up, people like myself that grew up in a pre-internet world, an introduction of the internet world and a post-internet world, until all of us die off and we get into a culture that grew up, was born in the internet age, grew up in the internet age, dropped in the internet age and lived their entire life in the internet age, until we move to a world where that is exclusively the case, we're going we're gonna to have these hybrid and omni-channel shopping experiences being yeah. a huge a priority because people's behaviors just, it, it's a, it usually most change of this scale is generational change. I think I agree with you. I think right now, like you said, people are going back and shopping, but it's not more of trying to bring the two together, to break in online, make it work. Yes. That, that's the word they're talking about now. Absolutely. 100% agree. And I think that there's a lot of easy ways. And I've been talking about this more lately, because I think a lot of brands are missing out on opportunities to bring online and offline together in low tech, simple, easy, achievable ways. I think brands are overlooking the simple in favor of the complex as an excuse to not do things, right? And I think something as simple as QR codes. Every person on the planet now knows what a QR code is thanks to the pandemic and thanks on thanks to scanning and everywhere. And so I, I think that using printed QR codes that lead to specific category pages, printed QR codes, or even digital screen QR codes in physical stores, particularly in large physical stores, where a lot of retailers, they cannot show all of the inventory that they have because they have limited shelf space. So if you sell home appliances, for example, you might only be able to show one or two air fryers that you sell, but you might have 30 different air fryers available. So why wouldn't you put a printed QR code or a digital screen QR code on the aisle with air fryers that says something like, scan here to see all of our air fryer range and learn more about our air fryers or having QR codes printed and put onto the packaging of all products that lead you directly to the product page that tells you all about that product, gives you all of the information about the product, allows you to add it to your cart. So there are a ton of things like this that are very low tech, but they start to bring together the online and the offline shopping experience in ways that we just don't see today. And I think brands are missing a trick on that because what they're trying to do is they're trying to bring in digital digital pricing, shelf pricing modules. They're trying to bring in all sorts of crazy things into the retail space, which I think are also important. I think we need to completely digitalize the offline experience. And there's lots of amazing tech out there to allow that to be possible. But I think brands are using the complexity, the cost, and the time to implement those digital in-store experiences to do nothing. They're using that as a justification, a cop-out to do absolutely nothing <laughs> offline. And I think, that's a, I think that's a missed opportunity because I think that people are looking for to have that convergence between offline and online be super easy, super seamless, using their smartphone, the smartphone's the remote control of their life. They're used to that now. And I just think retailers need to really take a long, hard look at themselves if they want to, if they want to drive, if they want to leverage the online assets that they've already built 
in the offline space, they're going to have to get smart about it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because I think 2023 is when I think we're in the eye of the storm right now. And I think 2023 is going to prove as people, the catalyst for 2023 probably being even more challenging than 2022 is going to be a huge percentage of the world's population who have mortgages moving off fixed rate mortgages onto floating rate mortgages. And at least down here, at least down here in ANZ, unlike North America, which in the United States and in Canada, people can easily secure 30 year fixed rate mortgages. Those don't exist. Those don't exist outside of pretty much Canada and the United States. That is not the norm. That's not the norm in Europe. It's not the norm in ANZ. And the longest that you usually get your fixed rate mortgage for is, is three to five years. And then you go into floating because banks just will not expose themselves to that low, those low interest rates for 30 years. They won't do it. And as a result of that, we're going to have a lot of people in Australia and New Zealand coming off of fixed rate mortgages over the next 12 to 24 months. And they are going to, they, in some cases, their mortgages are going to double. And so this is going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a real challenge because that's just going to suck so much discretionary spending out of the economy into paying mortgages and rising cost of staples, food, fuel. It's it's going to create a whole bunch of new challenges out there, systemic challenges. That combined with, so retail opening back up combined with the secular retail headwinds and decreased discretionary spending means that a lot of pure play online players and omni-channel players are going to really have to get, they're going to have to do more with less ultimately is the message, I think. And there's lots of assets that were built in these businesses during COVID that are not being leveraged to the maximum degree, I think. And I think that marketers, technicians, operators, operation specialists are going to have to get really clever about how they leverage their existing resources. Yeah, I tend to agree. I tend to agree. And that's one of the things that we like to go on about with our integration work, which is ultimately is doing more with less and uh, streamlining processes and cutting out unnecessary steps that require human resources. But yeah, that's just our little angle. I think it alludes to, it's not just your business and your industry and your vertical that you play in, Mark, but I think it alludes to, there's a lot of apps, off-the-shelf apps for most major platforms that can streamline and automate certain functions within these businesses. There's a lot of minor, relatively quote-unquote minor customizations that agencies can do for their customers that add certain automations that, that, that can basically bring some of these things that are being done by human hands today, those can be automated to a large degree. And yeah. whether that requires an app, whether it requires a custom integration or a light front end customization or logic on the front end, there are ways that people can automate aspects of their business that they haven't even thought about because they never had to think about it. That's right. I was just going to say that it's nothing like a bit of pressure to, to get people to look for better for ways to do things better. And uh, that's what's happening right now. Everyone's having to look at, okay, how can we do this with the same or less resources? Yeah, absolutely. And how can we leverage these assets? Because there's a lot of brands that maybe even if they already did e-commerce pre-pandemic, even if they already had, let's say, an e-commerce website or whatever it might be, they realized they were not structured from the ground up to have e-commerce be their primary uh, or sole go-to-market channel. They just weren't ready. They weren't engineered for it. They weren't engineered for it in operations. They weren't engineered for it in terms of their warehousing, their logistics. Basically, nothing in their business was engineered with e-commerce as their primary go-to-market channel. And so they got a short, sharp shock. And so a lot of these brands poured huge amounts of resources into their online presence over the last 
two and a half years, spent massively, replatformed, really up built huge capabilities in terms of logistics and warehouse management systems and ERPs and all sorts of crazy things that they invested in just to cope with e-commerce becoming their primary go-to-market channel. Now they're going, geez, okay, that was a huge investment. Now as people revert back to more online shop, uh, offline shopping, how can we leverage this resource that we've built out? Because it's a resource. It's an mm-hmm. asset in the business, right? How can we leverage this asset in cleverer ways so that we get lasting ROI now that online sales have dropped off a cliff. Also, we have to remember that a lot of people that got brought or sucked into the industry over the last couple of years, they have never been through an economic downturn, let alone an e-commerce downturn. They're too young. And so the reality is those of us who have been through a couple of worldwide significant recessions, been through the dot-com bust, been through the GFC and several other smaller recessions in between times and contractions in between times, plus those of us that have been in the industry a long time and have seen the impact on our industry of some of these downturns. We, we just have to remember that we're in the minority of people out there operating in our industry that have seen economies turn, have seen our industry turn and go through massive disruption. And as a result of that, we're going to see, we're going to find out over the next 24 months who the next generation of wartime generals will be in business because they're going to be put through a trial by fire. Yeah. yeah, interesting. As we all have, right? You both run your own businesses and I run my own business. And look, it's, it is it is not easy. But I tell you, once you've been through a couple of contractions and you realize that it's doable, that, yep, you've got to, everybody's got to tighten their belt. Everybody's got to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And you've got to batten down the hatches and plan for good six to eight to nine quarters of some severe contraction in the industry and it being harder to secure new business, new contracts, new customers. I think everybody's just got to be really emotionally prepared for that more than anything else. Because I think a lot of people are hopeful and I think it's good to be hopeful. And I think it's good to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And I think that you can't have over a decade of cheap capital flowing into a market. You can't have that happen without some severe downstream consequences when that capital starts getting sucked back out again. I mean, we're, we've got a massive vacuum hoovering up capital now. It's whether that will still come and hit, I guess, our customers and then ultimately flow through to us. But right now, we're still seeing a lot of businesses looking at streamlining their operations and planning for planning for growth. So are you saying yeah, you're well, seeing a lot, of, a lot of signs that there's going to be that severe downturn or are you just looking at say the mega players in the states the facebook's and the twitters of this world letting go thousands and thousands of of people yeah i think they're i think largely they're using that if we look at earnings are certainly not off as much as the rifts the reduction in forces that these companies are doing they're using it as a as an excuse really a justification saying hey look there's some economic headwinds ahead we expect the market to further contract because of rising interest rates that are going to be there for indefinitely at this stage according to the fed in the united states because they want to get inflation under control. So I think the forward-looking modeling, if you've, you you just cannot say that doubling of interest rates or trebling of interest rates will not have ultimately, there's always a lag between rising interest rates and impact on discretionary spending. But we're, we are starting to see, although most of those companies are doing very well from an earnings perspective, what they're saying is, we know what's coming because we're seeing decreased, radically decreased ad spend. So they're seeing that they're seeing the firsthand, first order effects of 
the concerns in the market, right? So if you look at Facebook, if we look at if we look at their earnings, but they're more importantly their forecast earnings in terms of the trend that they're seeing in decreased ad spend. I think these are the canaries in the coal mine, right? And they're at the they're at the pointy end of where this is headed. And look, mm-hmm. I don't want to be a doomsayer by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it, it's going to be pretty it's going to be pretty difficult for the Fed and the other central banks to engineer a soft landing. I think we're somewhat insulated, and perhaps Mark, you're somewhat insulated in that in a contraction. There's actually a greater need for automation. There's actually a greater need for efficiency. There's a greater need to do more with less. So in some respects, you're counter-cyclical, right? Where when everybody's flush with cash and they can hire bodies to throw at a function in a business or an operation in a business, then there's less incentive to automate those pieces. But when businesses are contracting, they have to. They have no choice but to bring a level of automation to their business that they never had to before. So you're probably a little bit counter-cyclical in the way that your business operates to a degree. Yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's a good place to be. I'm probably counter-cyclical in, in what I do because I've definitely seen a decrease over the last couple of months in the inquiry flow coming in. So definitely I have firsthand experience of noticing fewer inquiries of particularly B2B businesses wanting to either replatform or set up e-commerce for the very first time. I've definitely noticed over the last, say, 60, 60 days, the amount of inquiries coming in for that type of engagement and that type of project has decreased. But what has increased for me, oddly, or maybe not so oddly, is software vendors, either startup software vendors or established players, wanting my help in their go-to-market planning and their go-to-market modeling and their tech roadmaps and their partnerships because they're get what they're trying to do is they're trying to set themselves up for when we come out the other side of this thing. They want to grab a whole bunch of market share and they want to be well set up to do that and they want to be well architected to do that and they want to have yeah. the partnership and technical and commercial partnerships in place to make that a reality and they want to yeah. make sure that the spending that they're doing today over the next 12 to 24 months in terms of their technical roadmaps are fit for market. That's what they want to make sure of. And so I'm seeing more inquiries from software vendors than I am merchants now. So that's the shift I've seen. I would tend to agree, but I'd also add that probably the slight slowdown in terms of B2B inquiries is in line with with where we're at on the calendar. A lot of businesses will now be going into maintenance mode. They'll not be looking at adding new features and functionality at this stage of the year. So uh, some of them obviously will have resource available to, to carry through and plan and prepare for the new year. But most of them will now be saying, we got to slow down, keep everything running the way it is. We won't be adding. In fact, a few of our clients go into a freeze. No new features will be deployed from now on right through to the new year. You, you make a good point, though, that I think when it comes to, because there's heaps of iPass platforms out there now, there's probably hundreds of them out there now. But I think mm-hmm. you make a good point, which is that it's when you're looking at having system integration done, whether it's through an agency, like I know Allegiant does a lot of its own system integration for customers. Sometimes they work with middleware, sometimes they build their own custom, but regardless whether you have your agency do it, whether you have a dedicated third-party provider do your system integration, I think the partner doing the integration and their knowledge and understanding of the systems in play is probably more important than the actual middleware that's built to, to be the plumbing. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Do you guys come across a, a bit of requirements, Joel, in that space? Integrations in middleware? Yeah. Yeah, very frequently. We have lots of clients. And one of the key cases that I find where we recommend middleware is probably the classic. We've started our ERP project and we're holding off e but 
it's ERP is probably going to take us two and a half years to do. And we find that then often we'll have to integrate with an existing ERP, knowing that in 12 months time, we're going to have to switch over. And that's often a good use case for putting forward utilizing middleware, because then theoretically, if you choose the right middleware, it doesn't actually care what it's talking to on the ERP end. So it reduces, while it's a little bit of extra cost up front, it can often reduce that rework factor down the line. And what else? Mitsubishi Motors Australia, we used Fires, the middleware, and that was more from a data transformation perspective. So they had multiple different formats and sources of data that were then feeding through into Adobe Commerce to form the product modeling. Yeah, a couple of different use cases where we find strong, strong reasons to use middleware. Very good. Um, but at the same time, we're also, we've got probably about half a dozen we like working with, but we tend to remain relatively agnostic to what one we use. That often annoys Adobe a bit or our software partners because we go in and ask what the problem is before we try and put forward what the solution is in terms of software. No, absolutely. Now, we find that a lot of the clients we end up working with have durable investment in their ERP systems and often don't want to go and rip and replace the ERP just to, to have a new e-commerce front end. So they're quite happy to build a new website and deliver new functionality online, but it needs to talk to the old existing ERP. And that can be, yeah. we've done heaps of work with things like MYOB XO or Recon yep. or various flav flavors of Sage and and so forth, NetSuite and those. Yeah, yeah, as you say, the integration shouldn't really care what's at the other end, but each one of those do have little picks of how you need to actually deal with them and the structure and the format of the data that comes out of them. Getting online orders back into them is usually quite the simple process, but just looking at how product data is and attributes, enrichment data, a lot of that doesn't, a lot of companies aren't yet in the space of implementing PIM systems for that additional enrichment. So we've worked with probably 90% of our clients actually have used their existing ERP and created custom fields or tweaked existing fields to add that enrichment data in the ERP itself, rather than implement a separate PIM alongside it. Although we have done that as well with clients, but it's, yeah, there's often quite a bit of, uh, as Jason was saying, advisory and consulting work involved in showing the client how their data ideally should be set up at the source once and then from then on any new products they add in the ERP to be set up along that format or that formula and then things will flow through the integration to the website and if you do that once then like you say if they replace their ERP then they would ideally migrate the data from the old ERP to the new ERP and it would look almost the same when it comes out the new system. So yeah, it's actually one of the selling points we usually hold up is that once once we've got our Kodi, Kodi is the name of our integration platform. So once we've got that platform in place, replacing an endpoint becomes a lot easier than actually taking down the whole house of cards and starting all over again. I can't help but quickly ask, what's MYBEXO like integrating with these days? We we did back before they had any kind of form of APIs or whatever, we did an integration for an existing client, but we've, we're in conversations at the moment with someone that they use XO. We're hoping it's improved, but what's your opinion on it? It depends really whether the client has got the APIs or not. Some installations do and some yeah. don't. So we've worked with some where, where there's been a lot of scripting that had to be built around the fact that there wasn't any suitable APIs there. 
And in other cases, we've used the APIs. I guess for us, it's really just a matter of establishing how we need to talk to the application and then our guys do their thing. So it's really neither here nor there in terms of the complexity of it. It's really just horses for courses. What we see is, and I'm sure, Joel, you see this too, you, you see every form of integration out there from API-based integrations to CSVs and SFTP servers to connection to Google Sheets to the to various microservices that actually have to be built out in middleware, the data transformation that has to be done heavily in middleware. I guess the one benefit of typically that's part and parcel of having a middleware in play is the fact that instead of just being the pipes with some data transformation rules along the middle of those pipes, having your own database sitting in the middle for that data as well, both pre and post transformation to where you can roll back data and you can do custom logic within middleware and all sorts of things. That's where you start to get the real benefits out of middleware. If it's just a simple integration where you just need one pipe to connect one endpoint to another endpoint, and maybe do some minor transformation or field mapping in, in, the, in between, and you don't actually have to store data for any length of time during that process then microservices and things like that can potentially be the easier and quicker way to go initially. But over the long term, I think, and Joel, I think you'd probably agree with this, that having proper middleware in play, particularly where you have more than two endpoints, if you've got five or six endpoints and you're not using middleware, you're in for a world of hurt. If you'd like to register for free for the mentor sessions with Jason Greenwood, Head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, and click Get Mentored by Jason. See you there.